0: This is Rabbi Josh Uder of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's Shop Donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good morning. It is Sunday, November 10th. This is the last class in our series of the halachic process. There are no source sheets this week. This is just for my own personal reference from week one. Um, so for a change, we're not going to have any typos. I'd um, mm-hmm. like to say you know, thank everyone who's been coming on a regular basis. This has been a long class. Uh, I did a quick count on Friday, and as of today, the total number of downloads from the series so far has been over 5,600 which is pretty impressive when you think about it. So I'd like to thank everyone here for coming, without which there wouldn't be a class, and everyone for listening, and I hope you've all found it useful. Um, based on some comments and questions and how much we've covered, it makes sense to just spend today to go over what did we learn throughout this entire series, try to address any questions people might have here, and ultimately try to explain like what was the point of all this. Um, because like you can... Even if you're really cynical, you can say, well, the whole reason why I decided to do this was to prove why my approach to halacha is right. That wasn't the intention. It was just more of a happy coincidence. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's something that we do, you know, there's a lot more depth there that needs to get explained. Um, The main goals I try to offer was when people make a halachic argument to unpack all of the premises behind it. Whenever people talk about halakha as a matter of law, there is... Implicitly, an exorable connection between uh, the obligatory nature of law and the authority—the authority of someone or some body—to impose obligations on someone else—and we spent a great deal of time trying to unpack whence does that authority derive. We started off at the very beginning talking about you know the big question of what is law. Baby, don't hurt me. Um, no one? Sorry. Um, okay, you're, you're much better off. Uh, <laughs> we started off introducing with what is law. We started off even that subject well, We with the fundamental premise of the Bible as representative of divine will. That is not something that I can prove, as I discussed, because you can't prove the legitimacy of the Bible from itself, nor can I... Uh, prove the existence of God, so we're going to take it face value that the Bible represents the will of God. Then we work down how did we how did the rabbis get their authority? How did they justify it? We showed a few examples about one way they justified it was based on the Torah itself. Uh, another is that they were uh, agents in transmission. They were part of this unbroken chain, which we saw actually did have some breaks in it. We discussed that even the rabbis had a sense of fallibility. Right? that even though that they were these representatives, they weren't above the law. There was some objective law to which they could be held accountable, and these rabbis, if part of what we call the rabbinic tradition, also set up the rules for how halacha ought to be transmitted and changed. They were the ones that set up things of you know rabbinic nature of things of um, you need a court that's greater in number and greater in wisdom to overturn. You need, after a decree is made, you need some um, measure of communal acceptance in order to uphold it. Otherwise, the law could dissipate. It just gained no authority. They also set the rules for what makes someone a rabbi. How does one get to be part of this fraternity? Right? We spent a class on that too. Where things kind of start to break down is after you have the dissolution of the institutions that the rabbis themselves set up, what do you do? And that's where you get to the big questions of today. We saw in great detail the Maimonidean approach, which is essentially the rules of halachic change and transmission are the same in his day than they were in the times of the Gemara. Because that was the way the judicial process worked. And until you have that authoritative body, all of the rules on the books of the Gemara are the final rules that are obligatory in all of the Jewish people. Why? Because... Again, they had the authority that came from God, not in the, you know, God speaking through them, although we'll see that a little bit later, but in the sense of they were following in this tradition. And if you assume that the rabbis of the Talmud were, in fact, the correct uh, transmitters of the oral law, then you would have to follow their system. Meaning you could say, well, I don't believe the rabbis of the Talmud were the correct Interpreters, we're just going to go back to the Bible, let's say the karaitic view, or any of number of the sects that you had in the times of the Gemara, which the rabbis called Minim, other categories, other different types, right? So you had a bunch of people floating around who did not accept what we would call the rabbinic authority. If you don't accept it, well, that's not something I can convince you. If you presuppose that the rabbis were in fact the authentic representatives of the tradition— Well, then their rules are going to have to endure, including how does halacha evolve? Maimonides had his view of how does halacha evolve. Other rabbis started changing things around, or at least if you want to say other rabbis started changing, we had other different opinions. Could be for any number of reasons. Could have been for social reasons, social need, that not only did they have to to change certain parts of law, but they also had to change how they expressed it. We saw differences within the Ba'alei Tosafot, in the Tosafist tradition, where in some cases, they seem to follow the straight, what I would call legal positivism, of Maimonides. Other times, they said, well, here's what people are doing. There is an old tradition. What people do is considered Torah, is considered law and of itself. So it doesn't matter what the Gemara says. What people are doing is of a superior nature enough. We need to reinterpret the Talmud to justify what the contemporary practice is. That's a fairly big leap. We can argue again, did they have the authority to do so? We could also argue, you know, perhaps they were operating under a category of Hora Atcha'ah, oh, of this was an emergency and this was the best way they could frame their innovations in a way that would be accepted. That much, I don't know. I'm not a psychic, but there are multiple possibilities. Usually, I will take things at face value unless you have compelling reasons to know otherwise. After the Ba'alei Tosafot, you've got centuries of Ashkenazi rabbis all arguing over matters of authority. See, for Maimonides, he acknowledged that the authority that he had to write the book, the Mishneh Torah, wasn't from himself. It was really from the Talmud. In that, according to the language of the Rambam, you follow me, Shahadat Note whomever convinces you the best, by what does it mean the best? Having the best read of the Talmudic law. Such that, if you have a better read of the Gemara than the Rambam, then you could disagree with the Rambam. Or to put it another way, you can follow the halachic system and method of Rambam to disagree with Rambam on a specific issue. Meaning Rambam can write something as this is Jewish law, you can go back to the Gemara and say excuse me, Mr. Rambam, that's not what the Gemara says. Or we have a better text. And that way, even if people say, oh, aren't you arguing with the Rambam? The answer is yes and no. You're following the method, which is a lot more important than the details of following the person of the individual. So Maimonides derived whatever authority he had only based on the Talmud itself. When you get to later rabbis, it gets a lot more complicated. Where does all of that come from? So we saw a bit of matter of tradition, We explain that in greater detail over two classes, one of which even dealing with historical revisionism. People say lots of things are tradition, or we've never seen this in our tradition, when really it's because they haven't studied history or have explicitly edited out the uncomfortable parts. Um, And people do that when rabbis are still alive. I think I mentioned in one of the classes, uh, probably on Irvin, that one thing that got Rav Moshe Feinstein really ticked off was when people went around saying this air of is kosher according to Rav Moshe and it wasn't and that was when he was still alive kal vchomer when he's not around to respond to people who say a lot of stuff in his name right we also dealt with the question of consensus which is an argument that people have given if enough people agree well then that's where rabbis define their their that's where rabbis get their authority which then also puts us in a very tough position of circular reasoning because then you wind up having the ultimate authority not being from rabbis but from the from the masses of what people decide to do in which case it's coming from the bottom up instead of the top down so to speak. We dealt with other examples of where does uh, might authority derive and we saw the idea of Das Torah which despite Avi Shafrin's um, contentions was in fact expressed as rabbis who can intuit the will of God, who have some special connection to understand the divine and how it works so that they know what God really means. And we saw some examples of how that worked on the right and how that worked on the left in terms of open orthodoxy. And we also saw, to a great extreme, what happens when you go to rampant individualism not based on da'at, mind you, meaning you could read the introduction of Rambam and say, well, since he says you follow Misha had da'at notah, whoever your knowledge convinces you, as well, everyone can do what they want. But that's quite different than what Hartman said, as we saw last week. What Hartman said was, it's a matter of your personal sense of morals and intuitions. And that's what wins the day. And the difference being, is it the halacha that you want it to be, or the halacha that you think actually is? And the difference is, for something that's moral, you and I can argue. For something that isn't based on the Talmud, I should be able to go up and give you a good reading of saying, here's why this means what it says. Words mean what they say, unless, again, you can provide a compelling reason otherwise. If you want to say, when the Gemara says this, it doesn't mean what it says, sometimes that might be a valid argument, but you need to provide evidence for the change in meaning. One example might be, if you have two statements by one rabbi that seem to contradict each other... Right, you're going to look for some sort of resolution. So how do you go about that resolution? How do you interpret it in such a way to smooth over internal contradictions? Right, Those are classic methods that are open to interpretation. I might see it differently than you see it, but at least that's going to be based on dot. That's going to be, be based on knowledge that's certainly a lot more empirical, even though there might be a subjective, conjectural nature behind it, which is very different than saying, This law goes against my moral sensibilities, and therefore I need to justify it. So that's the entire series in a huge nutshell. At the end of the day, it's my opinion. I mean, look, there's a reason why I think the way that I do is trying to, because I've given this a lot of thought. Unless you take a view of positivism, kind of like Maimonides, then pretty much anything can go, and the system will fall apart. Because you will then be forced to come up with some formula for how Jewish law works that is going to be somehow consistent across all denominations. Because after all, as we saw in the class of conservative Judaism, they did not innovate halachic method. They did everything methodologically. They did everything that Ashkenazim have been doing for centuries either in terms of their specific halachic rhetoric, how they got to certain conclusions, or the fact that they had their body of rabbis in their supporting community. So they've got their internal consensus. So they're following pretty much the same halacha, but to a different direction. This is what makes law law, as opposed to... Let me rephrase that. This is the difference between viewing halacha as a matter of law versus halacha as a matter of Jewish culture halacha is a matter of Jewish culture, then there doesn't need to be rhyme or reason. There don't need to be rules to it. Uh, But if you see halacha as law, and you want to try to portray it as law, then you're going to have an objective system. You're going to need that, because that's what law is. Unfortunately, you're going to be caught between one of two possible, really uncomfortable situations, or it could be uncomfortable. One is, as we mentioned before, if it's a matter of not strict positive of following a legal system, then you're going to have to come up with a reason why everything that you do is okay, but when other people do the same thing, it's somehow bad. On the flip side, if you do have an objective law, then that means you're going to have to say some great people or possibly heroes were incorrect. Now, there are polite ways of doing that, you know, more than others. And we actually spoke about that this past Shabbat. Um, I don't think I was here for that, but part of the Derashah was... When Yaakov made the curse of whoever took Levin's idols would die, at the very last line, it's, he didn't know Rachel had them. What if he did know? Would that have made a difference? If you view it as a matter of law, then it wouldn't make a difference because it would be independent of who's the one doing it, right? And that can be very uncomfortable for people to say, well, you know, this great scholar, this great person whom, as a culture, we've, you know, really, uh, what's a good word, um, uh, God, sorry, it's still early in the morning. But as a culture we've aggrandized in one way or another, right, that that person could have been flawed in a way is very difficult. Even though the Gemara acknowledges itself, rabbis can be flawed and rabbis can make mistakes. So let's go around the room, see if I have any questions. I guess I know you had a bunch.
1: Yeah, you don't want them all at once. but um... Well,
0: okay, well, if you want, to do one at a time as we go around the room right. so that we hit up everyone. Right. So right. hit us with your first one. No, I have to choose.
1: Um, all right.
0: You want to get back to you? You can take a uh, no, no, pause. No. All right. Um,
1: so um, there's there's a tension in my mind. I mean there's a the way you talk about halakha, it yeah. seems like in every case there is a right answer and the question only is can we figure out what it is or what it isn't. Well, let me let me refine that for you.
0: I think in our vernacular. We confuse two issues of halacha and p'sak, where halacha would be the general rule of what is obligatory and what is forbidden, whereas psak is a specific question comes up, what do you do? And the difference being we can all agree on the halacha, but we might disagree on what gets applied. There are numerous mitigating circumstances when it comes to um real-world p'sak halacha that need to be taken into consideration. This is why Ruf Tenler, in his analogy, said, chas v'shalom, God forbid, you have a Rosh Yeshiva making p'sak halacha for you. You want a Rosh Yeshiva making p'sak halacha, meaning deciding the specific rules, like you want a mathematician to build your bridges. The mathematician knows the math a whole lot better than the engineer, but the engineer knows how to build a bridge. A Rosh Yeshiva who's, I mean, I use the idiom of, is in the ebony tower, just like learning a whole bunch of texts, can tell you what a whole lot of people say, but doesn't know how people work. A Rav in the real world has a very different approach to halacha. That's where you have in the Gemara the requirement of Shimush. You don't just learn, you have to actually study under someone, follow them. See, you'll learn almost through osmosis, by just hanging around, see how they act, see how they operate. Because it's that real-world um, uh, impl- uh, implementation of halakha is what matters as psaq. So when it comes to halacha, like you're going to find people are, you know, might agree on, here are the 39 malachud of Shabbat. Everyone's going to agree tying knots is prohibited on Shabbat. People might disagree on what sorts of knots are prohibited. Right? So that's where I would say there's a difference between halakha and psaq and uh, professor daniel sperber wrote a book on that uh, nautica talmudica where I'm he actually what knots yes specifically knot theory <laughs> went back to the um you know what were the what were the types of knots that were tied in the times of Hazal and to try to use that historical information to resolve the medieval dispute
2: how do we have that historical
0: information um you have he's somewhat of an art historian too and one of the cool people that, you know, does that interdisciplinary stuff. Um, people, yeah, thanks to a lot of interdisciplinary research, you can do a lot more these days and say, well, look, I know someone wrote a book on all the agricultural tools that they had in the times of the Gemara. So there are ways, like, the point being, you can argue on the details as a p'sak, but agree on the general rules of halacha. So that's a distinction that I would make that's very important. There are piskei halakha that I make in this shul where if I were the rabbi of another shul, I'd act differently. Not because I think the halachah is different, but because I think certain things that are appropriate for this synagogue would be very inappropriate for something else, for another one, based on the demographics. Right. As long as you know what's permissible and what's forbidden, and even things that might be technically forbidden, you may have to look the other way based on who do you have there. I've said it numerous times. You know, we daven here nine thirty on Shabbos. I think that's too late. But I know if I make it earlier, not only is it not going to help, it's going to be counterproductive. So it's not ideal, but it's something that, as a matter of reality, I need to deal with. Because if I make it earlier, it's not that people are going to show up earlier. Whereas in another shul, maybe. Or if I had a show where I knew, like, no matter what I said the people would do, that's not going to happen here. But if that's the way the case was, sure. So you need to deal with the reality there. So if anyone comes up and says, you know... I can't doubt in there. 9.30 is too late. Halachically, it's would say, yeah, I don't disagree. But as a matter of sock for this shul, you know, I don't have, I don't see a more practical alternative. All right,
1: George. I want, I'll, oh, I'll, Just for the record, you grabbed the ball out of my hands and ran with it. Sorry. <laughs>
3: uh, the Ramman was excommunicated this time, and yet now we hold by his laws.
0: No, that is not true. The, remember the first week, the first class that I gave, Um, I gave examples of Rambam, Shulchan Aruch, Raman, Mishnubura, where we don't hold by them. We don't, uh, contemporary Ashkenazi halacha does not hold by Rambam. Contemporary Ashkenazi halacha cites Rambam incredibly selectively and arbitrarily. It will rely on it as a source when it's suitable, but ignore it in a whole lot of other cases. Right? Which is why I gave that first class. Anyone who says we Paschen like X is probably wrong. Because all you need to do is provide one exception. And the reason why you go through this class of methodology is to try to understand why are those exceptions there? Meaning, if you want a system, if it was straight Rambam, fine. But no one does that, really. And I've got too many examples where people don't follow straight Rambam. But on the other hand, why, or even like, let's say Ashkenazim would say, Ashkenazim followed the Ramah. No, you don't, not entirely. So even if you say most of the time, great, you follow Ramah most of the time. Or As Rav Tendler put it to me privately, we follow the Ramah except when we don't. Hmm. That is a direct quote. Um, But the question is why? Meaning, so let's say you follow Mishnabur over Ramah here. My question is why? It's not that you follow the Ramah, but I can also show you examples where you follow the Ramah and ignore the Mishnabur. So even table, it's not when people cite the sources as this is why we do something. They're giving you a, what's it call it? They're implying that this is an authority, or at least an authority on this particular ruling, but they don't exactly justify how. They don't justify where does this person derive that authority, such that when you go all the way back up the chain, you can answer that ultimate question, how is this God's will? At least when you follow straight Gemara, they provided some examples about how it's God's will. Rambam never made that pretentious type of argument. He said, this is what I think. Well, well, no, no. well, he, he made another uh, people considered it pretentious when he said, all you need is my book. You don't need anything else. <laughs> right. That you could say is a little over the top and people took issue with that. Yeah. But he didn't say that it's all me. It went back to the Gemara and he still said you could argue with it. it. Wasn't like, oh, you know, that's it. Like, you know, I mean, the intent was even the lay person can pick it up and read it because you had too many people that were in control of the law and no one knew what to do or even how to evaluate it. Right. Because remember we did, I think we might've discussed the, you know, guttle problem. Right. How do you know who's a great rabbi? You know, especially if you never learned anything, um, right. You're start, going to start giving people the keynote. You're going to start testing them. And this comes up a bit with um, baali Teshuvan, sometimes converts, who have a great deal of cognitive bias, which is, not cognitive bias, uh, confirmation bias, I'm sorry, which is the first rabbi you listen to, the first rabbi you encounter, he must be it. This person is arguing with my rabbi. It's like, true, but how do you know your rabbi was telling you the truth? Maybe he was making everything up. You've got no way of knowing, right? So... I have to argue with that premise when people say we follow the Rambam because that's just not true.
3: But he's always cited.
0: He's cited selectively. He's not always cited. Okay. He's cited when he says things that people like and ignored when he says things that people don't.
3: Uh, he had uh, 613
0: mysteries in it. And Ramban had a different number. No, well, no, he had the same number of 613, but he had a different counting. Rambam also had 13 principles of faith. People argued with those too.
3: Yes, okay, that, I, I read some of that. All
0: right. Yeah. So, sorry. <laughs> Dana?
2: Okay. Um, okay, I'll try and keep this concise. Ah. Uh, question before the question. Yeah. Um, was the Vilna Gong versus uh, the Baal Tov in this series or the one... Politics
0: before? of exclusion. Mm-hmm.
2: Right, okay. So, it seems that at least the, what, what I took away from that class was that the Baal Shem Tov was maybe a little bit more of um is important but do what fulfills you spiritually and brings you closer to god maybe that's a that's a tremendous generalization i know yeah Just glossing I, over it. but hang on that's not the question uh-huh. Um, it seems like we've seen a lot as 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 we've uh, as time has uh, elapsed or progressed that we're seeing a lot more on the left things that tell us that's maybe not maybe not do what brings you closer to God, but um, starting with a conclusion of what we want the law to be, and then working backwards.
0: Why do you say that that's more prevalent on the left than the right?
2: Just saying that's how it seems.
0: And I'm asking, why do you? Why, in your mind, does it seem that way?
2: My experience of the Jewish community, setting aside, setting aside the the Hasidic communities that impose specific strictures, like don't wear steel rim glasses or contact lenses. Yeah. Or don't say good is to someone on the street because it might make you late for sure. Aside from stuff like that, it seems like...
0: I, I get the seems like. My question is, how did it get to that point of seeming? I mean, why do you see it more on one side than the other?
2: I guess because I see it more. Maybe, maybe I'm not attuned to okay. everyday things So that th- goes on, like on, the, on me, the way, right?
0: So, honestly, you can't really get inside anyone's head at any time. The argument that you've made I don't think is new. I think sometimes it's, how to put this, sometimes it comes off differently based on writing style. And I know that seems a little bit weird. When you read a conservative responsa, it reads more like a position paper. When you read Rav Moshe Feinstein, it reads like he's working through his logical thought process. So when you read it that way, it could seem that the conservatives started with a conclusion they're now justifying it, whereas Rav Moshe has it and he's like working it all the way out. The difference, the problem with that, I guess, is You'd be a fool to think Rav Moshe didn't know the answer before he put pen to paper. It's just the way that he writes it is in such a way that shows a little bit more, let's say, depth of thought as opposed to writing a definitive piece. I mean, there are some times it's going to be very straightforward, um, but we'll see in, let's say, the electricity class in two weeks. Uh, that's not always the case even with him. And sometimes it could very well be he did start with a conclusion. And sometimes you can tease that out of what he says also. Um, in two weeks, we'll be dealing with Rav Moshe Feinstein specifically, contrasting his responsa where he forbade microphones in one and permitted hearing aids on the other on Shabbat. And we'll spend a great deal of time with that, um, such that I'm not sure, I don't think that, I don't think that's always the case. But I will also counter that there are some cases where we do start with a conclusion, and pretty much everyone does. One example being mamzer. Someone comes up with a case of a mamzer, rabbis will go to bend over backwards to try to make sure this kid isn't a mamzer. That's starting with your conclusion. right? Now you may be able to distinguish between a specific psak, meaning a specific case before you, and reinterpreting general halacha for the entire Jewish people. Right, That would, again, go back to that distinction. Meaning if someone comes up to me and says, well, this is my case, I can do my best to come up with a very specific psych why this ought to be the case. As opposed to if someone's asking a general halakhic question, well, what do I think the general rule ought to be? That might be something else too. I don't think that there is... So this could also just be experiential. I don't see too much of a difference in that regard on the left and the right. Um, part of it being too much of specula speculation on either side, but with enough time, you could probably find enough phenomena on both provided you don't get sucked into, um, simply, you know, writing styles and how do you present the material? Meaning when I write something in terms of halacha, I don't write like Rav Moshe, right? I don't say, well, there's this and there's that. I go through, I say, here's what I think is the halacha. Here's why. And I'll offer it that way am I starting with my conclusion before I write something, you better believe it because I'm not going to start writing and I don't really know where I'm going to end up. I haven't done that since college. Um, and I have done that in college. That wasn't really a lot paper. I've written a few papers where I'm just like writing whatever I could. like, Hey, I'm noticing a theme. Just slap on a new introduction, new conclusion and bam. Right. That's not what I, if I don't have an answer before I start writing, I don't write. And I do enough research to write. And I don't handle every single possibility. But then again, I'm also not Rav Moshe Feinstein. Right? Yeah. But
2: you used an interesting phrase. You said before he put pen to paper. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that he knew the answer as soon as he read the question.
0: True. But you have no idea to what extent him or anyone else relied exclusively on it. We spoke a few weeks ago about the question of intuition. Anyone who spends enough time in any field, when you have a problem, you've got an intuition. That Mm -hmm. first approach of how do you do it? George, you do computers. Someone gives you a computer problem. Physics, mathematics. Anything. Now, you could be wrong, but you got to start somewhere, and you use your intuition of experience to start out. The difference being, and everyone does it. I do that, too. right? The difference is, that's your starting point. What happens when you continue learning? And do you allow your intuition to blind you to actual research? This happens in academia, where sometimes people's intuition just... And I, uh, I've seen this with a lot of people I respect... Just force things through and ignore all contradictory data. So you that have study was flawed. What? You can say that study was flawed, the contradictory study. Perhaps, right? But then you have to offer reasons why and all that. Meaning, the difference being, to what extent... Are you using your subsequent research to justify and validate your initial intuition? Or to what extent is your intuition just the starting point? And you have no idea how that works for any individual. And the truth is, I'm not even sure if anyone's consistent. Because people are still human. You catch someone on a bad day, they could be working through it. They could be in a very antagonistic mood. Or if they see something as part of a larger threat... And they say, well, ooh, you know, this is a huge slippery slope. I'm going to come up with stuff now. Whoa. Right? And that's not necessarily, uh, from a PSOC measure, isn't necessarily a bad thing. I uh, gave several times uh, the analogy of Rav I know, m- talked before about how I don't like quoting him so much because of how he gets misinterpreted. Um, selective quotation. Selective, well, right. But here I'm doing it correctly. Um, when it came to Mechisa... <laughs> Right. Rav Soloveitchik said that if you're better off not hearing shofar than hearing it in a shul without a machitza. He said sitting in mixed seating, mixed seating synagogues violates a biblical prohibition. And if you're a kofar in the politics of exclusion class, my father flat out said that's just wrong. Rav Soloveitchik is inventing a midrash halacha that did not exist. He had no authority to do so. But... You know, you could understand why did he have to use such extreme language? Because for something like women's tefillah groups, he never said explicitly that it was forbidden, even though it was clear he didn't like it. And we saw in the exact text how certain individuals could say, "Well, not only we follow, not only are we supporting women's tefillah groups, but we're still following the overall method of Rav Soloveitchik, right? right?" is that true? Is that not true? We'll be like, well, you're following the method of the Rambam to come to a different conclusion. But at least here they're saying, well, the implication is Rav would have approved of this. Like probably not, but people will argue about that. Um, again, the, the, the point there is when it comes to such rhetoric, you don't really know what's going on behind it and what the motivation is. If you know that people are taking what you say with a great deal of seriousness, such that they're looking for you to determine communal policy, you have to be a lot more careful with what you're saying, such that, you know, and it's a difficult position to be in. If you overstate your case, people who actually know Halakha can say, well, you're just making this up. And if you understate it, people might not take you seriously. It's one of the advantages I have of not being a representative of the entire Jewish people. I can just say what I want, typos and all, and no one's going to be breathing down my neck. Right, It's not an enviable position to be in, and that needs to be taken in consideration, but then you could also argue more on the merits of the argument as opposed to the uh, personality of the one making those decisions. Corinne, we'll keep going around. Nothing? Yes. All right, if anything comes up, just pre to chime in. Dan, back to you. Yes. Okay, George.
3: Um, tell him um, on a game hey, show here. If Solidarity says it's permissible, it's how I have Okay, but I don't like it. Yep. Is he permitted to say, if it's halakhically permitted, is he permitted to say he doesn't like I know that's a personal statement, but that affects how other people view the halakhic. Yes
0: and no. And that's an important distinction. Thank you for bringing that up. There are times when I will say something is forbidden as a matter of policy. Uh, I said that in the shul here once regarding women's aliyot, where I gave what I thought was a reason why, according to Letter of the Law... There is no reason why women cannot get aliyot. Uh, if anyone's interested in listening, I've on my webpage made a connection with blind people getting aliyot. Won't go through the detail here. All right, you know, forget. It. I'll just summarize it here. The argument that I gave it was, um, according to Letter of Jewish Law, a blind person isn't allowed to get an aliyah. However, according to Mishnah Burra and others, a blind person can get an aliyah. Why? Because the prohibition about a blind person getting an aliyah is... That the person who gets the aliyah is supposed to read, but you're not allowed to read the Torah by heart. Today, though, the person who gets the aliyah doesn't read. We have in the language of the Mishnah Burah, the Shleach Tzibur, the Baal Koreh, who's doing the reading. So, therefore, it's not a problem for a blind person to get an aliyah. Why is that a matter of Why is that a matter of women? Because according to the Gemara, Hakol shiva, everyone goes up for this minyan, the counting of seven but kavod zibor a woman doesn't read because of the sanctity or the honor uh, the honor I'm sorry of the congregation and there is a whole lot of literature on what is kavod zibor what does it mean whereas i argued the prohibition isn't on the aliyah on the going up but on the kriya on the reading now once you're going to make that distinction between blind people make that same distinction for women therefore it should be 100% permissible but As a matter of policy, I also said we are not going to do that in this shul because it would destroy the synagogue. We would certainly not bring anyone in. We would alienate people in the present and prevent people from moving in in the future. Right? Now, does that mean that I don't think it's halakhically valid for some? I don't think someone who does it violates Jewish law. But it would be really stupid for this synagogue and many, many more were they to institute it based on social reality. And since, even if I say that it's not prohibited for a woman to get an aliyah, there's no obligation for women to get an aliyah either. So we're not breaking Jewish law by not having women's aliyot. No one can tell me that either. So it makes more sense for this shul. Now that was a halachic policy as a matter of psaat. There are times when rabbis can say, I don't like it. The difference being, is a rabbi's aesthetic halachically binding on others? And if so, how? So my halachic aesthetic is really binding on this synagogue to the extent people are going to listen to me. But just because I think something ought be done or ought not be done, that doesn't mean that another congregation out in Wichita can't do something different. Rav certainly has a right to say, I don't like it. Not a problem at all. But the question is, to what extent do you, George, have to follow his religious aesthetic? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Certainly in his shul. If he was the posing for the shul, and he set the policy, then you'd have to follow it in that shul. But if I want to set up a shul next next door, let's say not next door, like on the other side of town, I don't have to follow his religious aesthetic. Because you and I can disagree. We had that argument also regarding um, Psak when we discussed Eruv. Um, and the question of Rav Moshe Feinstein specifically, not regarding the halachot of uh, an Eruv in Manhattan, which he did acknowledge other people disagreed with him, but regarding, uh, is it better to put up an Eruv that Rav Moshe Feinstein might think is invalid for people who are already Mechal shabbat And he said no. And he was incredibly chareif, very, very sharp against those people.
3: But at the same time he said that if somebody comes along and says you could put, put up an air you're not allowed to say you can't use it
0: um, so even though no, he no, it was a little market, yeah, yeah, it was a little different than what he said he said don't protest them putting up That was a different in the response what did
3: he say about losing
0: it? two different things there there's if there's an air roof that he thought was kosher I mean fine if he thought the air wasn't kosher the question was should they protest putting up an air roof and he said, no, because people who are, in his words, you know, reached that level of hora'ah, people whom he respected to be poskim, disagreed. And he said, that's okay. right?
3: But that's just the opposite of what Salvedric, uh did. I don't like it. That means don't do it. Where Rav Moshe is at least allowing for a reinterpretation, I
0: if don't know. Along, I would have that's to. does
3: process you can't do. We would
0: have to see what Rav Soloveitchik wrote in print and then parse it out. And even if you do that, as we found, there is a very big difference between what Rav Soloveitchik said and what many of his students want him to say. It's a very good example of people recreating him in, his, in their own image. Uh, it's which is again why I avoid citing him all the time unless it's. Clear, like without you, know, you see why I cite him selectively, not as a matter of authority, but as a matter of he provides very useful examples.
2: Um, so most of the halakhic process, I mean, I'm sorry the way I'm stating the obvious now, but most of it stems from rabbinic authority of the moment. Um, as far as what individuals in every generation do I'm sorry that's a long winded way we're supposed to make for ourselves a rav Mm -hmm. for the person who hasn't done that Mm -hmm. who hasn't picked a guy if you will um, can they sort of until they pick a guy, can they sort of pick and choose from whatever well h- how does such a person how does yeah such a, such a person live
0: a or, or better how does a person pick a Rav? okay so uh, Rory picker niece uh, when she spoke here as part of the Marat thing came up with a wonderful idiom of what she called a psa cop
2: yeah. I remember um, that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I have to get, I'm a little annoyed I didn't think of that first, in all honesty. Um, so what do you do then? We actually saw an example of that in the Gemara. It was in Hulin and in Erevin where, if according to the Gemara, if you follow the stringencies of Hillel and the stringencies of Shammai, you're an idiot. The fool gropes in the dark. And if you follow the leniencies of both, you're considered a Rasha. Now, is that picking and choosing? Yes, but in a specific way. What causes you to pick and choose? I mean, the language of the Gemara is you pick one and you follow the entire system, right? But the Gemara isn't always entirely consistent either, meaning yal Kagan Anyone knows what yal is? No? Those are the six times in the Gemara where the law follows a Baye over Rava. Say it again.
3: Those
0: are six times in the Gemara, each yud stands for something else. There's an entrance bechin, I believe, to the kolal. Uh, stands for a different case in the Talmud where the law follows Abaye over Rava. Usually when they argue, the law follows Rava over Abaye, except in those cases. Law follows Shammai over Hillel in a bunch of cases that's listed in the Mishnah in Right. So is that picking and choosing? Here would be the difference, Dana. What the Gemara talks about, as I understand it, is picking and choosing people based on the conclusions, meaning as opposed to how did you get there? Meaning there's a difference between here's a guy who says what I like, meaning I like, you know, not just I like the way he thinks, but this guy tells me stuff that I want to hear. So I'll go to whomever I want to hear as opposed to I ask this person questions because I like how they think most of the questions that i get from the people who do ask me questions as a matter of psak ask because i like you know they'll say well i just like how you think about things and i want to get you know your take uh at the same time when i give you know when i tell people what i think the law is i don't do it with shame psak you have to do what i say i do it as well i know at the end of the day you're going to do whatever you want to do anyway that's just how Jews work uh, I know a friend of mine. It was a weird situation. She had asked the rabbi a question regarding something. And the rabbi said, it's OK. And she was bothered by it. And she really thought it was problematic. So after a little more fetching, she's you know, the rabbi said, OK, fine. So be strict. And she complained to me that rabbis don't make up their minds. <laughs> I said, no, rabbis make up their minds. You just didn't like the answer. And my girlfriend at the time pointed out I shouldn't have actually said that as bluntly as I did, but that's actually what happened. So it doesn't just mean you know, you don't like the strict answer. It's sometimes you don't like the lenient answer. right? So I assume at the end of the day, you're going to do it, you're not going to do it, whatever. Uh, the best I can do is try to convince you why I think this is Jewish law. right? And I'll try to make the best case I can. If my case convinces you of why I think this is halakha, all right, then maybe that's a chance that I'll convince you. If not on this issue, maybe on something else. Now, if you're only going to follow the most lenient opinions that you can find, that would be the halakha according to uh, the uh, the gemara that we saw, and that would kind of make you a rasha. If, however, there's you know you're following a consistent method, right, and you're following like the straight shetah so be it, right and i think that's one exemption uh, not ex- i think that's one exception that people might take towards the conservative approach to halakha that even though they may use the straight you know method of the tosafists try to find well when do they come- use that method to come up with something strict and the truth is they do every now and again sometimes even more than i think is halakhically necessary there's a responsa uh, i think where they said about how internet privacy uh, piracy type thing is actually stealing that's something I argued with, right? So that's a case where I think they're stricter than technical law mandates. A um, bunch of other things. So is that
1: really consistent or not? Who knows? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just some small questions. Um, you know, you say that if the Talmud says X, then X is the halakha, right? Am I? In right?
0: part, meaning the Talmud says a lot of things, that's including things rough. that are mutually contradictory. Right. right? Right? So then the question is, it, it's not that it's strictly the Talmud. It would have to be based on the Talmud at the very
1: least. I mean, can you give an illustration? There, there must be... How do you tell the difference between something in the Talmud that therefore is halakha mm-hmm. and something in the Talmud that isn't? Well, when you've got two opinions that, again, mutually contradict each other, right? you're going to have to
0: follow one over the other at some point, Right. And Talmud doesn't say halacha. Not always. Right. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And then you know that that's when things might get a little bit grayer. One way of trying to solve that is to go to the Geonim or like the generations closest to the time of the Gemara and see which of these disputed opinions was considered normative. Not as a matter of halakh- not as a matter of intrinsic halachic authority as much as historical validation for one opinion over another. Today, it's very rare to see, how to put this, even in traditions, halachic traditions, that are more, lack of a better term, call it adaptive, won't say, well, we're going to follow Rabbi Yehuda over the Chachamim here, right? They do just say, well, the is like the Chachamim, but we're going to interpret it in such and such a way, right? So that might be a distinction there. Another difference might be, let's say there's no dispute. It's just very straightforward, you've got no contradictory evidence. Right? Then what do you do? Right? So that could be an example. Like if there's a dispute in the Talmud, you know, maybe you can say, well, you know, we'll follow Rabbi in this weird case, because we don't actually know where the Halakha decided, even though then you might go back to again tradition for historical purposes. But when there's no dispute all right, and you cannot demonstrate any dispute. Mm-hmm. Well, then that would be kind of objective, because right? that would be taken at face value. Because you know, is it possible that there was a dispute and it just wasn't recorded? Yes, but we can only do the best with what we have. George,
3: um, I forgot what I was going to. All
0: right, back to you, Dad, because you had a bunch of others. Uh, go up. No. Uh, uh, I'm no, no. Um you are, I, this really feels like the weakest link. I was like, you are the weakest what link. What happens
3: when a rabbi and a community uh, follows a certain rule that a rabbi says is the law? Yep. And we find out that it's not the case. Yep. What what um, authority do you have to continue
0: following it? Wonderful question. So that would depend. The argument that, my personal approach would be, if you know that they're wrong, you don't do it anymore. And you tell them they're wrong. The analogy that I gave a few weeks ago is, if I'm a conservative Jew, my community drives to shul on Shabbat because all of my rabbis said I can drive to shul on Shabbat, am I breaking Shabbat? And that is exactly the justification that most Orthodox communities base it on. This is what our Velt does, this is what the world does, and this is what our rabbis say is okay, so this is why this is Jewish law. Now, they would probably say that, conservative Jew who drives to Shul on Shabbat is breaking Shabbat. But are they breaking Shabbat according to their own halachic system? No! Right? Now, the example that I gave to the extreme was the Irni Dachat, where when you have a community where the populace worships idolatry, you don't say you follow the custom of the community, you destroy the place and burn it to the ground. Right? So by what authority you have to say what they're doing is wrong is, assuming you have an objective halacha, then it's wrong. And say, you are wrong because you are violating such and such biblical or rabbinic prohibitions. And then you'd say so. But you can only do that if you believe in an objective halacha. If, however, you don't have an objective halacha, which I don't think many people do, then you wind up playing a whole bunch of lambdas games of why this is okay and that's not okay, and saying why you know this deviation is okay, but that deviation is clearly you know horrible, or we don't have a tradition for that, or we've got a tradition, and it essentially gets reduced to, we're right simply because we say so. And it's no longer an argument about law, where people try to convince you, this is what I think is the halakha, but you're rather bludgeoning people to obedience by yelling at them and calling people names. So it's not just you have a right to say that you're not keeping halakha, you would have to argue, here's why you're not keeping halakha. And if you're talking about levels of about giving rebuke, I have a separate class on that in the Current Jewish Question series.
3: Okay. Reb Moshe had uh, Leon Earn uh, Price as a scientific <clears throat> consultant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, a rather well-known mathematician at Temple University. Um, <clears throat> and I'm sure that there were many things that Reb Moshe followed or posthum that Leon Aaron Price would say no, it's not the case. For example, fire in the wire, uh, electricity, is it firing the wire or not? Mm-hmm. And he, as a physical mathematician involved with uh, physics, um, would have had to say no.
0: But yet... Well, that would be different, because then you've got, like, again, th- that's a little bit trickier, because you could have... I mean, we're not discussing remote motion detail, but in the class that we gave last week on electricity, we showed that just because it might not match a scientific definition of fire would it match a halachic definition of fire? And that's different. That's more important. We, well, we call it, you know, halachic physics, right? Might not be actual physics, but is it halachic physics? Other areas, you know, even Rav Tenler disagreed with Rav Moshe Feinstein on the lift and cut shaver. Rav Moshe Feinstein said the lift and cut shaver was forbidden because of the way they described it, it acted like a razor. Rav Tendler took it apart and said, no, this actually acts more like a scissor, and therefore it's okay, Right? So he didn't think, I mean, the, again, that's another good example of psak. It wasn't a matter of if Moshe Feinstein was wrong on the halacha. Everyone agrees you're not allowed to shave with a straight razor. Uh, or at least you're not allowed to shave certain parts of your face with a straight razor. But they disagreed on how does the norelco lift and cut shaver work. Oh, okay. Well, at the time, I, was it always norelco? I know today it's norelco. Nurel-
3: yeah, Whatever. Sure. However it's the
0: lift a, and cut the, thing it's works. It's a shear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah shear in its own right. <laughs> yes.
1: Shear.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: The, uh, it seems to me that throughout the course, yeah, uh, you've been saying everybody is inconsistent. Everybody quotes selectively. Yep. And there's this whole accretion of stuff like kidneys uh, separating fish from meat. Yeah. Where, where it's it's just all so muddy that you, that you know they're, they're, it's not clear cut, and and it just seems to me that the bottom line is uh, forget all of that choose a community you do whatever they do if you want to fit in well that, that's what some would work that's
0: that that's not what i do i mean i've got very simple answers to all those questions there kit Niot is permissible on Pesach. end of story fish and meat are forbidden to have on the same plate because of a decree of rabbinic law you're st- also must do my mahron why rabbinic law the fact that the danger is no longer applicable is irrelevant all really straight and simple if you follow positivism because if you've got a Takana, you've got a rabbinic decree, you need another court to overturn it. Where you have the inconsistencies are, where people say, this can change, but that can't change. Ooh, then you've got a huge, big problem. You see, the way that I was raised was, I mean, for people who have met my father, should come as no surprise, have no problem saying, yeah, all that you guys are doing is just flat-out wrong because you're breaking Jewish law. Part of that is, in fact, what Maimonides said explicitly in my all-time favorite response that we did here, on um, standing for the Aserah Dibro, where one of the arguments that was given by a particular rabbi was, of course you're supposed to stand when you read the Ten Commandments in Shabbat because, quote, they do it in Baghdad. And Maimonides said, the fact that they do it in Baghdad is no proof at all because if we found sick people in Baghdad, we wouldn't make ourselves sick, so we should be the same. Rather, we'd heal them to the best of our ability. The equivalent of, well, if all your friends jumped off the bridge, would you do it too? So way I was trained was, this is halacha. The fact that you're not keeping halacha? Not my problem. So anyone who doesn't do my technically would be in the wrong because you're not doing what the rabbi said you should be doing. Now, does that mean I'm going to yell at people and put people in cherim? No, because I'm, that's not how I operate. But that doesn't mean that there aren't answers. It just means in certain schools, you're not really going to get satisfactory answers because it would expose the inconsistency. Why? Because they're not approaching Jewish law as an actual law or as a legal system. Practically, it's a lot more about culture, about what Jews do, and rationalizing how did you get to the practice that you currently have under the assumption that we saw, based on the Tosafot, that min hagi el Torah, what Jewish people do is in fact Torah. But we also know that that's explicitly rejected in the Gemara. Not only is that idiom, Min HaGisrael Tarahi, Min HaGisrael Kedin, none of that appears in the Talmud, and it's rejected in enough places that it can just be disregarded. And even worse, as you find that people say, well, it's Min HaGisrael. Well, no, the Sephardim do. Well, it's Min HaGisrael amongst the Ashkenazim. You know, then it's not Min HaGisrael. So that, you know, even according to, even if you want to hold to that position, you
1: know, position, it's not entirely true. So where does that leave you? You know, still, you have to make the choice. Do I want these people to eat in my house or don't I? Do you like them? <laughs> that's a different question, though. That's a social question yeah. that's not the same as a halachic question. But in the end, that's how you have to decide. Yes and no. There, well, the, because I, if, if you hmm. put, put kidneyos in, in, in your food, they're not going to eat there.
0: True, but does that mean it's prohibited? That's the difference between law and the psach again. There's no obligation to eat kitneon on Pesach. So the fact that you don't doesn't mean it's prohibited. That's the difference between law and practice. Is it something that is a sore, that is forbidden, that if you do this, you're going to get God angry at you? Or is it something that you do out of a matter of convenience or for whatever's Look, I give the analogy, I could show up to shul wearing a pink suit, right? Now, in most shuls, that would not fly over so well. Here, it might. I have no idea. It's a wacky shul. <laughs> <should try> <laughs> I think That's not going to happen. Um, yeah. So... You know, you could, but the fact that you decide not to, just as I decide not to here, we're not going to have women getting aliyot, right? Doesn't mean that it's a sur. Something that is a sur, something that's forbidden, goes on everyone. Oh. All right? Although I should actually refine something with the whole minig Yisrael a bit. There are some times when popular practice can take on you know, greater significance if it's done in a certain way. So let me amend that slightly. We gave uh, two big examples that will come up, would be Mariv, and the other one would be the Benot Yisrael Hechmiru Alatzma, that the daughters of Israel were strict on themselves regarding laws of Nida. Alright, we could argue to what extent does that become Jewish law? But that goes back to our class on Minhag. Uh, Either Minhag or Chumrah. I forget. Those were, because we actually gave like four different classes on stringencies. So there may be some room to play with there, but... The question is who and how. And was the, um, and was it because people intrinsically decided to do something, and it's what people did that gave it that status of law, or it was only after the rabbis affirmed it that oh it started you know there and we're going to say that oh this is fine. Uh, to give an example, there was a one of the articles I'm reading here is on um, women's ordination and the history of it, and the author compares um, the conservative and the reform approaches. Whereas with the reform, it was from the top down, and from conservative, it was from the bottom up. Meaning, was it the leadership or the laity that were pushing for it? So when you have something like Benot Yisrael Chmir al-Atsman, was the fact that they were strict enough to compel other women to be strict? Or was it their stringency was validated by the legal process of Chazal? such that it might have started from the ground up, but the actual obligatory nature, of course, all Jews down the line, was from the top down? Or can something that is purely on a lay popular level impose uh, restrictions on the entire Jewish population as a whole? That latter one is a little bit more difficult to explain unless you really narrow your communities. Yeah,
1: George?
3: How do you know what is uh from the Torah and halachic from the rabbis—it's very often difficult to make that decision. Like the kidneys is that that's not certainly not from the Torah.
0: So the way that I would phrase it is this: you have to prove your obligations and you have to prove your prohibitions. If I'm going to tell you kitneyot are prohibited on Passover, it's my burden. To tell <laughs> you why it's forbidden, and rabbis, to prove the justification why. But the
3: rabbis uh, instituted as halacha. Which rabbis? Somewhere back there. Do you know who? Me? <laughs> no, I'm not. Well,
0: in which case, you know, that could be a bit. Until you can trace it back to the at rabbis, least the time. I
3: have to lie because I'm not educated yep. in halakha, and Torah. Uh, so I have to rely on other people and tradition. Yeah,
0: yeah that, tradition that's one of the reasons is. why I got smicha because I don't trust anybody. <laughs> it's too late for, me. for this very. Re- it's never too late. No, 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 no. That was also her- it's <laughs> I'm not never too late. No, <laughs> well, so find people whom you do trust, or you can always ask follow up questions, or find someone. And this is an, a psak hop. This would be you're telling me this is prohibited. Please explain how. Right, That's not ex- asking for you know, the answer that you want. You're asking for the rabbi to justify and validate his decision. You can always ask a rabbi, in the language of the Gemara, mile, what are the words for this? Where are you getting this from? And get it to the primary source possible. If the first source that you have for it is sometime in the Middle Ages, and it doesn't get any further back, You might be able to view that with a little more skepticism, assuming you follow the Maimonidean model, right? Because if it's a brand new law that came up, no one said anything else beforehand, well, who is this particular individual that he can make a new law for all the Jewish people? Would that be a rabbinic law? I mean, certainly it wouldn't be a biblical law, but would that even be a rabbinic law? After the time of the Gemara, no one had that halakhic authority. You could follow it, mind you, I mean, unless say, someone is telling you to break Jewish law, but there's a difference between you should follow it, because this is what people do, and you must follow it. Because there's something intrinsic behind it, such that if you do not do it, you're somehow breaking the will of God. Right? So you can always, ask, when you you always ask follow-up questions in terms of what is your source. And that you can always do. um, Now, again, you will actually have to trust them that the source exists and they're quoting it correctly. That I find people don't always do. Um, I know of a few cases where people are. One guy had to catch. He said based on how he quoted particular Gemara, I there was no other way to explain it other than he was an illiterate or a liar because he quoted the a Gemara. He gave a source and said this is what the Gemara says which said the exact opposite of what he was saying. You know, that happens.
3: Okay, we start out with 39 malach that we're not allowed to do. And the rabbis now claim that there's 39 on those 39, which makes about 1,500 to 1,600. And then there's, uh, on those 39, there's, we cube it and we go to the fourth power. Uh, how could you possibly know Um what is correct and what's not?
0: So should I take that as a vote for next week to start Hilchot Shabbat? <laughs>
3: no, I, I want to follow what God wants me to do. Right. But I have all these rules uh, that well, the rabbis is to, which ones are the ones I'm supposed to follow or that guide me to do what God wants to do.
0: So that's why you, the Rambam wrote the Mishnah Torah, for that very reason.
3: Yeah, he was a tether. Ch- what?
0: He was the
3: tether. How can I believe anything he says? Read him. <laughs> Oh, the rabbi said he was invalid.
0: Well, why do you trust the rabbis who say he's invalid?
3: <laughs> I don't know.
0: Well, that's okay. that's your own bias. Right? Or, so here's another. I go, George, I, I will give you a solution. George, individual. I will give you a solution. Very simple solution. Read everyone and make up your own mind. Right? <laughs> so start, you know, you've got plenty of time. <laughs> Just start going through it and see what makes sense. I'm struggling with invariant theory. I can't... Well, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you're... Go, well, th- that's a reason why, you know, again, the way, reason why Rambam wrote the Mission Tour was to make all of this accessible. You don't necessarily have to believe him on anything, but it's a starting point. And if something confuses you more, well, then look into it in more detail. But, yes, if who do you know whom to believe? Look, I can do the same thing with any advanced science, right? I take a class, I listen to them, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong... Science is something that's supposed to be reproducible. I don't know how to run experiments. Who am I supposed to listen to? I don't know. Right? So what's the answer? It's like, well, you study enough in order to make your own decision. Or you just arbitrarily wind up trusting someone. Here would be another important distinction, though. You know, if there's a difference, I think, between you coming to terms with something of your own and starting to Poskin for other people, which a lot of people do. Um, meaning, I can't tell you how many people have said, oh, this is the halacha, this is the halacha. Like, people who don't have smicha telling me what Jewish law is. Now, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but they're parroting what they heard. That, in a sense, is a form of psach. And that also gets a little bit tricky. Meaning, at what point, let's say someone doesn't have smicha, does not have, and smicha, again, being that authority tell, like, here is what halacha is, you can say, well, here's what I heard from my rabbi, like, that's nice, but assuming you heard from your rabbi correctly which as we know from Ruf Moshe Feinstein and Ruf Salavechik is not always so clear cut right? Is that really what the halacha should be in this case? Let's say you heard it from your rabbi and they heard it from their rabbi so I think there's also an important distinction to make between you following your own psaq for your own life or how you raise your own family and telling other people that they're doing something wrong
2: um, so if two people's Rabbis conflict mm-hmm. and they have a discussion. My guy says A, your guy says B. How do we draw the line between Shivim, Han, and Latora, that, whatever, that, that two views, that there, that there can be more than one perspective in how to apply in the law, and just your guy's wrong?
0: So two things. First off, Shiva and latorah doesn't actually appear in the Gemara. Or to put it another and I heard it I, I heard this in the name of Nechama Leibowitz, but I don't know if she actually said this, is that there's seventy latorah, but not seventy one. Meaning like there's a certain plurality and there, the answer to that question is really going to depend on your community. For as right wing and as exclusionary as the most right wing Yeshiva is going to be, they're going to be pluralists to an extent because they're going to have different rabbis on the shelves who disagree. Anyone who has a Rambam and a Ramban on the shelf is going to be pluralistic because those two operate with very, very different halakhic systems, right? So what counts as a valid opinion and what does not is all going to depend on the school where you're being trained. For some schools, it's going to be, if you've got a difference of opinion in Rishonim, then it's going to be valid. For other schools, it's going to be based on philology. It might be based on more what you would call today scientific academic methods. Those would be how uh, differences in a derichalimud. What questions you ask and what counts as a valid answer. Uh, how much you rely on the text versus how much you rely on the individual. There, I don't think there's an answer. That is going to depend on whatever hadracha, whatever approach you had in psa of what really counts. So for some, it's going to be like language and philology, matters a great deal to some. Right? Well, what do the words actually mean? Oh, there's a linguistic ambiguity, it could mean X or it could mean Y. This can go either way. Or another approach, or people can take a lot more, um, let's say, generous approaches with textual interpretation, but set up other arbitrary lines. There's no straight answer for that one. It depends where you are, but that's also why it's important to ask questions. Even if someone equivocates and says, well, it could go A or it could go B, explain why do you think both of them are plausible, right? And that's a distinction my father likes to make between a plausible read and a necessary read. A necessary means the text must mean X. It cannot mean anything other than X. A plausible read means it could mean this or it could mean something else. Both are possible, all right? and might fit in with whatever textual or linguistic ambiguities, but neither one is necessary. Any other questions? Sure. George? Anything else? Corrine? I was starting to
2: form something in my head, and I've
0: lost it. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, if there are no other questions... We actually tapped out George. That's kind of impressive.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, when does a community's right to tell you what to do in a uh, Mexican valley? For example, I, I can't go to the grocery uh, here on Grand Street during Pesach and buy, assuming that he's open, and buy kit Mm-hmm.
0: So we did that, we discussed a little of that in the minhag class, that you got three cat- There, the category of what people do, or of minhag, even though it's tight, there's a distinction between minhag and no egg. But even with minhag, there are three different categories that we saw. There are customs that you have to follow, there are customs that you have an option to follow, and customs that are forbidden to be followed. Now, if I get up and I say that for this shul, the minhag ha is no kitniot, then it would be forbidden to bring in kitniot into the shul on Pesach because you would be violating the halakhically valid established custom of this shul. Uh,
3: but there's a, a thing, I, I, I remember when I wanted to break with my father's tradition about uh-huh. uh, Gibraltar, when yep. I got married, <laughs> uh, I had to go through... With, with uh, a cloth, a hanky. Yeah. And
0: so we we argued. So we discuss that. To what extent are you allowed to deviate? Although I think I missed this. There was a, this is a gemara at the very beginning of Chulin, of when you're allowed to deviate from inherited traditions and when you're not. Right. in terms of that, as I understand yeah, minhag. So
3: just with my
0: father. What about the as I? So from my understanding of the gemara, the halachot of a minhag are more communal based than inherited. Right? Although we did see an example where uh, Rav Yochanan told people, your father's already forbade this, so now you have to continue forbidding this. Except that could have also been your father's established a communal norm. The main obligation seems to be in terms of makom shenahagu, not what you personally happen to do. Look, my father was a Balchuva. My grandfather wasn't observant. Technically speaking, if he carried on the tradition of his father, we wouldn't be observant. And then you've got the... Um, Whatchamacallit, you know the, the Gemara of Tishmoru uh, right? On your mother and father, and keep the Shabbat. Meaning, if your parents tell you to break Shabbat, you're not allowed to listen to them. So that would be an illegal minhag. Now, kebrachs isn't an illegal minhag; it's a silly one uh, that I just learned this past year is explicitly rejected in the Gemara, where it talks about being fulfilling your obligation with soaked matzah. But aside from that, um, you know. Are you permitted? Yeah, because it's not intrinsically prohibited to do so. And you don't have an explicit Gemara that says... I, we actually contrasted that with... It can get a bit tricky there. So, any last questions?
1: I guess I'm still confused. The, the, the fish and meat thing. Yeah. <coughs> um, is the reason stated in the Talmud? Because somewhere yep. you told us it says... Sarai. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so it's not a case where, we ha- where we're only guessing the reason yep. and invalidating it. Yep. We know the reason, mm-hmm. and we can't invalidate it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because
0: once you have, a, according to the Maimonidean approach, once you have a legislated <coughs> decree, it doesn't matter why that decree was legislated. You need an act of legislation to overturn that decree. And it's not just Maimonidean, it's also some of the Tosafot that we saw. Like I said, comically inconsistent.
1: What if you found out that the <clears> halakha <throat> itself was actually causing harm? Because it's, it was fallacious. Um, th- what do you mean by harm? Um, I don't know. Suppose, suppose it, was, it was determined that there was now a poison in meat. That could only be cured by a a chemical from fish that had to be eaten together with it. Well, then you could
0: say, like, overriding in terms of, you know, taking care of yourself, Mm -hmm. in which case, you know, their abundance can be overturned. Or, like, uh, look, someone who is ill has an exemption from fasting on the rabbinic fastings or ill of a certain level, right? So, even though the rabbi said don't eat on these days, understanding, well, if this poses a certain risk, well, eat, Mm -hmm. all right?
1: But in terms of it
0: being law, it's still going to be law in the books until another Sanhedrin
1: can overturn it. All right. So one, I guess one thing that bothers me is, is I feel like there's an analog here of uh, uh, one man, one vote, one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sanhedrin gets the authority. Yep. And they say, we cannot be overturned except in the following circumstances. Yep. Well, they are now making themselves God. No. Because they're still allowing for well certain things to be
0: overturned. The Supreme Court cannot be overturned. Uh, the Supreme Court of the U.S. cannot be overturned unless the Supreme Court gets up and overturns itself. Okay, but if the U.S. Is, goes out of business, then the Supreme Court is still going to be law of the land unless you know we get taken over by let's say communists, mm-hmm. right? And then they just destroy the Constitution and say, "Yep, United States of america got gone."
1: And then they start it from scratch. Okay, but then there'll be a group of people who run away to Alaska. Yep. And carry the civil code of the U.S. with them for the next thousand years and are not able to overturn anything. Yep. Correct. (laughs) Unless they, until they reconstitute their own Supreme Court.
0: Hypothetically, God forbid, uh, someone bombs the um, Capitol during uh, the State of the Union. Right? So we're not going to have the Supreme Court, until that gets reconstituted. All right? So until that would happen,
1: you know, we're going to be stuck for a while. But in that case, it, a thousand years will not go by without it being reconstituted. Given
0: the way politics works today, I, I think a thousand would be a, a cautious estimate. Um, but so be it. And that's been an objection that halacha is static. But the truth is, it's not that halacha is static. The halachic process... Is still exactly what it is. And when you're talking about Psach Halacha, I find relying on that objective law to be a lot more liberating. Because you know, once you know where the boundaries are of the four cubits of Halacha, you know what's permissible, you know what's forbidden, you know how to find what's permissible and what's forbidden, so you know where you can make adjustments as necessary. And when people say, well, why can you defi- do X and not Y? You have a straight, direct answer. Because of that objectivity. The boundaries are what allows you to grow. The boundaries allow you, you know, to institute permissible innovations and to change things. Why? Because it doesn't violate the system. And at the same time, you know exactly where those limits are such that you know I can go this far, but not a step further. And you've got how to figure all of that stuff out. Right? So all it means is, I can't come up with new laws that are binding on the entire Jewish people, and I can't overturn existing laws on the books. When people say halacha is too restrictive, it's usually on the side of, well, we can't overturn laws that seem anachronistic. But it's never along the lines of, well, we need to come up with new laws to obligate people in more stuff. And really, it's a matter of both. Right? Well, when I, had my qu- when I asked Awai Rosh Hashiva my question on piracy and like, is it illegal to you know download MP3s his response was, I'm sure if the Sanhedrin were around today they would forbid it to which I responded, oh so you're saying it's permissible he was not happy with that logical leap but <laughs> said, that's what your argument is, like I could agree they would but until they do you know, I need me some Metallica well this was back in the day of Metallica and the Napster Y'all remember Napster? Yes. <laughs> Look, I know I'm old. Yeah, I do, you know, yeah whatever. Yeah, I <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's, you know, when people say that halacha can't change, yes and no. The boundaries of the arbot halacha are going to be set. But when it comes to p'sak, there's a huge, huge range that individual rabbis are allowed to do based on the needs of their community. Right? What we do here would be different than another shul, and both would be within the confines of halakha. Like, I just think of the women's
1: issue as. as,
0: as All right. Um, Explain.
1: Because we are going to have a Wednesday class in egalitarianism in about a month or so. That, that um, society has changed so much yep. that, that so much of the restrictions just seem foolish. Mm-hmm. Like what? Uh, like women can't have an aliyah, or, 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 or well, I just argue that yeah, they but, could. Or, so. or, or, or can't be <laughs> a can't be the uh, chairman of the board. Yeah. Um, so some of those, I would, I, I mean, would all argue, of the, all of those things that that seem to be based on the fact that women are inferior to men.
0: Yeah. Well, some of them I can actually argue are rabbi, really halakha. but. And look, we can argue on that, but how much of that is actual halacha versus how much of that is sociology or cultural norms? Meaning, if I want to say that a woman. Uh, so here's a good example about the Rambam thing, which I might have spoken about it before. A woman can't serve in a position of power, right? You use chairman of the board, let's say president. Biblical or rabbinic prohibition? Say, rabbinic. Source? Is it even rabbinic? Well, George says it's rabbinic. Give him um, a chance.
3: Well, I think it goes back to the Torah, which says, "Choose for yourself a king." Yeah, uh, and that implies that you can't have a queen.
0: Excellent. Where well, is the, the source? It, it, where is the source for that?
3: It's in the Torah. I, I just
0: don't know exactly. Where... Ah, this is why I say you always ask for sources. So <laughs> why do you think uh, I uh, spent so much time in the source <laughs> sheets? Well, not so much with it. The... Here's here's yeah. the real answer. You're you're kind of right. There is a Midrash Halacha, a uh, rabbinic legal exegesis. On that verse, Somas point for yourself a king, malka, a king but not a queen. It doesn't say not a queen, it just says only... Vilow malka. The exegesis okay. says that. Right? That's, That's right. how the Seferi goes. Maimonides quotes that, and then he adds, similarly, all appointments within Israel. Here's the problem. That last line, all the appointments of Israel doesn't appear in any extant version of the suffrae and in no place in rabbinic literature at all. At best, Maimonides was working on a bad text, but his statement that women can't do it, as Dan correctly uh, predicted, isn't even rabbinic. Because Maimonides might have been working on a rabbinic text, but it doesn't exist. He has to prove that it is rabbinic. Since it cannot be done, using Maimonides' own method you can disagree with Maimonides to say, you, Mr. Rambam, this Rashah that you're saying is forbidden. Show me. What is your makor? Is it biblical or is it rabbinic? Ooh, it doesn't appear. Therefore, I can only assume you're working on a bad text, because it ain't here. Alright, so two issues. So that's also another good example I should say when people follow Rambam selectively. That's what it's based on, but they will ignore Rambam left and right every place else.
1: So... Uh... <coughs> First of all, then what are you going to do about all the people who quote it? But second of all, um, I give them that same answer. But, uh, but 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 yeah, but it's like whistling in the wind. Mm. um and, and what then, do you want from me? All I can do is teach lot. Ah, I can't force people to listen to me. So somebody can reply and say, okay, uh, it wasn't that he was working from a text that said that. He simply used logic to say that if, if you can't have a queen, then of course you can't also have a president. Wonderful. Are you bound by Rambam's logic? According to Rambam, Rambam the answer was is a no. Genius. Rambam <laughs> himself would say no. But nobody follows that.
0: <laughs> do you see that paradox there? Right? So Rambam was a genius. Oh, except when he said you don't have to follow everything that I say because I said so. Right? Oh, that we're going to ignore. Right? Instead, we're going to follow Rambam. What do you want from me? Right? So that right there is, is, I think, a wonderful example of, you know, more of a cultural thing than an actual halakhic thing. Because Rambam, you know, according to his own system, has to say, well, has to prove why it's forbidden and how it's either biblical or how it's rabbinic can't do that. And it's not the only time this happens. There are times when people quote from bad texts and just assume, well, this must be fine, but you check the text, it ain't there. So what are you supposed to follow?
1: But what about women's ordination? There it's more clearly... uh, A, it's it's more clearly halachic, and B, it's more clearly behind the times. How is it more clearly halachic? I figured if Halivni left over it, it must be...
0: Um, that was a little more complicated. They left not just because of the women's ordination, but because of how it was done and that it also violated their own internal process. Uh, it's also part of how my dad left over, because there was a whole bunch more to it. Meaning, like, one issue was, wasn't, was uh, from one of the responses, we saw that in part in the conservative class, wasn't that now that we've agreed to ordain women, but it was also, oh, women can serve as witnesses. Now, that is a huge, huge halachic jump there. Because even if I could say there's nothing inherent in the Talmud to show that a woman is unable to achieve the status of rabbi, and the truth is, there is nothing explicit in the Talmud that says so. If anyone's interested, we did a bit of this class on um, who is a rabbi, and a lot of it was based on a book that's hard to find these days by a guy named Jay Newman, and it's called Smicha. It's a full study on the history of ordination. And there's nothing there explicitly that would exclude women. Right? So when you say it's a halachic problem, say, well, what is the problem of giving women a title rabbi? Is it a biblical prohibition? Is it a rabbinic prohibition? And explain how that would work. Again, that's according to the Maimonidean system. According to the, you know, conventional system, it's this weird combination of this is halacha, this is what the Gedolim did, we've never done it before. The conservatives or reformed did it at first, and then conservatives, so therefore it must be wrong. Right, it's some weird combination of all of them. But you actually, for people, it's like chapter and verse. Are you violating biblical law or rabbinic law? And show me how, like, your source to justify that you're violating biblical law, not that this rabbi said so, unless that rabbi is always representative of biblical or rabbinic law. Because then you're just saying, well, he says so. Is it violating biblical law to disagree with him? Is it rabbinic law to disagree? Is it against rabbinic law to disagree with him? Ooh, much bigger case. And the honest answer is, very few rabbis would be that pretentious to state themselves if you violate my own religious aesthetic, you're breaking rabbinic law. Very few. I mean, I shouldn't say that. There could be more. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a psychic. I don't know what people are thinking. I'd say this. Very few rabbis would admit to it. <laughs> That'd be a better way of putting it. I don't know what people actually think. So there you go.
1: So is orthodoxy dysfunctional, at least in that area? I, I, what do you mean? Is it dysfunctional? Because it's it's making halacha where there is none. Um, yeah, well, in some cases, I point out to people, you know, baltusif is as much a prohibition
0: as baltigra. Inventing nui surim and saying this is prohibited without justification is a problem. Like if you want to say that I think this is prohibited because it falls under such and such a cat- uh, category. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We can argue that. But that doesn't mean I have to just submit to the fact that you happen to have this opinion. I can have a different read of something, or I can have a different sense of the reality. Right? You have to demonstrate the burden is on whoever is making the imposition to prove convincingly why their position is correct. Now, are they going to be convincing? depends who you are, and it depends what system you're working with. And it's not necessarily that you're agenda-driven. You sit and you start unpacking what are the logic, what's the premise behind it. Maybe you've got a convincing argument, maybe you don't. And maybe people's mind changes over time as you keep learning more. That can happen too. That's when you get to Misha Da'at Note. You follow whomever convinces you because according to Rambam, after the Sanhedrin, no rabbinic authority has that authority to demand obedience And no one has that rabbinic authority where other people can expect obedience of you to say, you have to follow this rabbi.
1: Who said? But aren't there many mainstream uh, orthodox congregations where the rabbi says, the rama says it and we go by the rama. A rambam says it and we go by the rambam.
0: He could be being descriptive or like this is what our, he could be describing what popular practice is or alternatively, he could be setting the halachic policy for that synagogue. Like when I say this is the Rahman, this is what we do. maybe he's not speaking for global Jewish population, but certainly we're going to this synagogue is going to follow the Raman this instance, which he's more than permitted to do because that's his job as a rav George
3: you um, we were talking about slippery slope mm-hmm. for example, we can't play a musical instrument on Shabbat because the stream might break and we would come to fix it mm-hmm. um, how does the, the notion of slippery slope play into halakha? Um, for example, did they play musical instruments on Shabbat in the um, time of the basement dish?
0: Well, I think so. Holubian.
3: Yeah. I don't know, it to... wasn't there. <laughs> what does the text say?
0: I, honestly, I have not studied Kachim yet. I'll get there in a couple of years.
3: I I know from uh, reading in biblical book that's my daughter and my wife.
1: It's always the- me.
0: I can't edit that out. Sorry, share Shaila's one. All right, so we'll get back to that. Um any other questions, Dana? Are you sure nothing didn't come back to you? You've been uh, awfully quiet.
2: Yeah, it was going to be something about the... It was just going to complicate this whole discussion more about... I don't context. see how.
0: <laughs> yeah. How
2: do you deal with things that get lost in translation? Because we are dealing with a lot of texts that have been translated multiple oh, times.
0: Yes, absolutely. And then it,
2: then it just... It seems to me that like you, you can't nail anything down at this point uh, because things have been translated so many
0: times. At so that time. could be a distinction between the necessary and the plausible reads. Uh, And people, you know, can start doing that. I found an interesting one. I was working with a friend of mine in Aramaic, and someone was reading a text, like, very strangely. And there was a distinction with the last letter of a word being an aleph or a hay, And that actually has implications in Aramaic. What do you know? So was the person wrong? Who knows? I took a wonderful class in Revel with uh, Dr. Steiner. Um, brilliant, brilliant man, and the class we requested it by. We, I mean, the Talmud majors because we were all geeks at the time, and we said it's not fair that the Bible students get a class in Biblical Hebrew, but the Talmud students don't have a class in Aramaic. Um, so we got Dr. Steiner to teach the class, and he teaches some rules of grammar, and then he would give us five texts variants of the exact same passage, and based on our knowledge of grammar, we would have to try to figure out which was the best text based on when it was allegedly written. So, it can be done. You just need to actually know language, understand language, and maybe you know, give plausible reads behind it.
2: It just seems to me that such a small subset of, well, I maybe mean, this is inaccurate, but such a small subset of people who are passing in Halakha have actually done that sort of linguistic analysis. That is
1: true.
0: Very, very few people. I know of two. My father and my father's teacher. <laughs> Um, but, look, my father also took Akkadian for fun. You know, that, that's just... Yeah,
2: I studying Russian and Chinese. <laughs>
0: exactly. Russian. But you know, So he did it for fun, but specifically for this purpose. Um, and look, if you do academic Talmud, uh, depending on you know what program you are, you're probably going to have to do Greek in order to understand a lot of the words. The Koran edition, uh, the new Steinzelt has Shai Sekunda working on it, who did his PhD under Elman, and they work a lot with Middle Persian. So there are people who do that working for the Gemara. However, <coughs> one thing, how to put this, how much of that actually comes up as a matter of psak is a little bit different. Because if you're just doing it theoretical, if here's what the Gemara meant, fine. Once you start getting into halacha, people get a lot more defensive. And if you start saying, well, I, I actually had one of my rabbeim at um, Yeshiva University, Rav Ben Chaim, brilliant, brilliant man pointed out that Rashi mistranslated something because he didn't know Persian. Ben Chayyim could make that statement. I don't think anyone else at YU could. I don't know any other YU Rosh Hashiba knows Persian. Now, what would that mean for Halacha? Who knows? Some people would say, well, this is the Gemara, but Halacha is a little bit different. Usually because you don't want to get into such fights over it. Because once you start intruding, it's like, whoa, you're like upending things. You, know, you can't make that argument anymore. People... Yeah, you know, you you, 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 it's the same reason why I don't quote Rosalievic. Like, right? you get to do your own thing, and people will, you know, take it to the and for However, you want to do. Yeah. Continue your question.
3: Um, yeah, uh, you we know learned from biblical archaeology that in temple times, cheese was made by putting uh, milk uh, with goats or sheep or whatever into the stomachs of. Um, you, were you here first sure
0: when I gave my shear on cheese?
3: Uh, probably... I gave a
0: she'er just on cheese, uh, and, and the, that that was a difficult one because it was kept intentionally ambiguous. I'll refer you to those classes; that will take that that'll take way too long to explain. Cheese is a very complicated sukkah. Okay. Am I intentionally ambiguous? I mean, there's an actual concession that the rabbis didn't want the reason for cheese to come out because if it did come out, people weren't going to follow it. And according to the Yerushalmi, the prohibition on non-Jewish cheese was because that was the day that Beit Shammai outnumbered Beit Hillel in some guy's attic, and just basically, it was like the Republicans taking over the government, passed whatever they could, and no one decided to overturn it or just couldn't. So cheese is a complicated, specific issue that I can't really address. Okay,
3: but besides the, the fact that cheese, um, there seems to be a slippery slope of uh, not mixing meat and
0: no. That's not a slippery slope. That's a rabbinic decree. It is. Uh, you're talking about yeah. what they call yeah. a gedder. <laughs> so there are times when they call, like, a xero ty- is, is in the idiom of a gedder, which is you put a fence around the law, okay. which I would, you know, you would call that a slippery slope. They called it more of a fence, because on one hand, in the divars and they admitted that too, the sages felt at certain times, we need to take extra precautions, because Otherwise, you're going to, there's a greater chance that you're going to mess something up. Anyone who rides the subway, right? You know that if you stand behind the yellow line, you will not get hit by a train. We're assuming you're not getting pushed into an oncoming one, right? If you just stand behind that line, you won't get hit. That's what Chazal wanted to do. But they were also said, you don't make a getter on a getter. You don't make a fence to protect the fence. You don't make a Takana on a Takana. They felt, here is a problem that we see today. We need to take extra precautions lest you violate something that's actually more serious. That they had a right to do. And that's not a slippery slope. Because again, as you put it, the slippery slope is, you know, if you do this, it's inevitable. And you would actually have to show logically why what you're predicting will in fact be inevitable. That's not always the truth. Right Now, I would say this, you have more slippery slopes, especially in the area of halacha, if people don't have a system, and people aren't working with a system. Because they say, well, this change is okay, that change is okay, that change is okay, that change is okay. Everything's on the books and anything can go. If you don't have a system, sure, that's theoretically possible. I joke that even conservative Judaism, in theory, if the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards decides to institute human sacrifices, bam, part of conservative Judaism. Right. I know they're not going to, and they'd still have to write a response on you know, how and why, but their system would allow for it. For the positivist system, it wouldn't. Right. And the same thing could hold true with stringencies. Oh, we need stringency on top of stringency. And when, if you have a system, you know, well, this is law, that's not. So,
1: well,
0: might not have to keep that part. It doesn't work in the positivist system if you get a Sanhedrin back again? Uh, technically, but then it would have to be through a specific act of legislation that this is prohibited, or they will undo a prohibition. I'll say, yes, we set up this takana, this no longer applies, we are now enacting something to undo the previous decision. In theory, if Mashiach comes and we have a new Sanhedrin, they could have the authority to remove second-day Yom Tov. It's a possibility. I would think it's probably one of the first things they do. But until they do, what we got? Right? But you need to have a system in order to know when you could push, when you cannot push, and how much. That prevents you from the slippery slope. Right? And the slippery slope would have to be at some point you're going to violate actual halacha. And that has to be the real concern. But then you have to show how is what you think is the end result going to be an actual violation of halakha. That means you have to know what halakha is beyond well, this is just what people do. What makes one deviation more than, worse than another? If you're talking about Orthodox Judaism as a culture, you'll get one answer. If you're talking about halacha as law, you'll get a very different answer. Alright? And that's why we really spent this entire time building this case together. Because when you work on halacha all the way back up, at the end of the day you need to ask, how is this what God wants? Not from your personal intuitive sense, but from the legal procedure of how is this God's law? Or as people put it, divine law in human hands. That, I believe, was Orbach's book. Uh, yeah, it's a collection of his articles. Um, or was that Jacob? No, I'm sorry, Jacob Katz. Collection of Jacob Katz's article. Like, is this really part of divine law? And work your way up. right? So we know that the sages in the Talmud try doing so. right? And they base it off of stuff in the Bible. Whom again, and again, two fundamental assumptions we need. Torah represents divine will, and the sages of the Mishnah and Talmud are part of the authentic tradition. Beyond that, how do you know who's the right authority and who you're supposed to follow in order to ultimately get to God's will? Again, not because you can intuit God, but because you're following the system that was laid down from the top down instead of the bottom up. Now, I think I was uh, offered an answer. I think I offered a reason not only why my answer makes sense, But why the other approaches are going to be almost impossibly flawed or left with unanswerable questions that ultimately are going to get reduced is, it is simply because we say so. In which case, the basis for your authority isn't going to be God, isn't going to be rabbis, it's going to be you. Which, on one hand, is a possibility, but then don't say you're really following God's law or God's will, you're really following your own will. And just, you happen to give a whole bunch of excuses on how it's not your will, it's really someone else's will or ultimately God's will, so that you come across as a little less arrogant and a little more subservient to some higher law, even though at the end of the day, you don't have a goddamn clue what that higher law is. It's just really doing whatever you happen to have been trained or taught and going with the flow. And with that, before I put myself in a bigger hole, thank you all very much again for being part of this entire series. And look forward to the next one. Be well.